from WJFF Radio Catskill, this is Close to Home, the podcast that explores the people, issues, and institutions in the Catskill Mountains, the heart of small-town America. I'm your host, Leif Johansson. Thanks for tuning in. In 2021, we talked a lot about our physical health, both on this program and, of course, in our everyday lives as we continue to battle the COVID-19 pandemic. But there is another equally important aspect of our health that all too often gets sidelined in our local and national discourse, our mental health. As of 2019, one in five Americans were living with a diagnosed mental illness. That is more than 50 million people. If you combined everyone diagnosed with heart disease or cancer in the same year, you would barely surpass 30 million people. And for mental illness, we're only talking about folks who have been officially diagnosed. There are likely millions of people living with undiagnosed mental illnesses in America as well, because there is a long-standing negative stigma surrounding mental health, and it can make being open about our own mental health struggles hard to do. But COVID has been hard on all of us, even if we haven't gotten physically sick. And with new variants on the rise and no clear end in sight, I think it is past time that we talked about mental health here on Close to Home. So the other day, I sat down with Dr. Amy Nitza, the director of the Center for Disaster Mental Health at SUNY New Paltz. And I started by asking her what exactly the Center for Disaster Mental Health is and how it got started at New Paltz. The mission of our institute is to ensure that all those impacted by disasters and traumatic situations have access to the mental health support that they need. We do that largely through training and consultation. So we train people who work with disaster survivors in various capacities on um, how to best meet the mental health needs of those survivors, as well as um, paying close attention to their own mental health um, and, and psychological resilience. And so we're working, you know, when we think about a disaster, the, those impacted by it are the survivors of that disaster, but also the responders who then go in and, and work with the survivors themselves. And we're finding more and more that as first responders and emergency managers, those type of people um, go into situation after situation after situation that their own um, mental health needs um, needs attention as well in order to to allow them to continue to do the work that they do. So the Institute was founded um, by my predecessor, Dr. James Halpern, who did a lot of work um, with 9-11 survivors. He he worked on the pile, if you will, in New York City, um, working with those who were working the pile. He did that for several months following 9-11. And after that, um, the university here um, saw the value in what he was doing and the and the potential value of that as a bigger um, as a bigger discipline. And so um, the institute was founded um, to allow him to continue um, 
that work and to expand it beyond direct support for 9-11 into a bigger um, a bigger picture view of, of disaster mental health. And so when Dr. Halpern retired, I was fortunate enough to get the job in, I think I've been here since 2016. So you have personally worked in a number of different disaster areas. So can you give a little bit of an overview of some of the lessons that you learned about mental health throughout your studies in areas that were struck by disaster in one way or another? I think one of the biggest overall lessons is that what people need in the immediate aftermath of a disaster is not the same thing that they need if they're going to seek traditional mental health treatment. So in the aftermath of a disaster, we're not looking at diagnosis. We're not looking at treatment of a disorder necessarily. Uh, We're looking at responding to people's immediate needs and those immediate needs that impact their mental health could be as, as simple as making sure that they are sleeping, remembering to sleep and eat, or it could be as simple as connecting them to their social support network. Sometimes Um, In the immediate aftermath of a disaster, people aren't making good decisions like they would normally make, and they neglect things or they forget what coping skills and resources they have around them. And so really our goal in a disaster response situation is to, you know, to help people get back to their pre-disaster level of functioning. So we do that in a variety of ways that, that don't look a lot necessarily like traditional mental health treatment, which is one of the reasons that our training is so important because... Um, we want mental health providers who do this kind of work to understand the difference between disaster work and, and other work. So when you or someone else working in your field arrives at the scene of a disaster, whether it's a hurricane, a major earthquake, whatever it may be, how do you begin to triage what to tackle first in terms of supporting mental health needs? Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good question. So, um, you know, when I go into a situation, let's say uh, if I'm, you know, going to go work in a shelter following, you know, like the tornadoes in Kentucky, to be clear, that's just an example. I haven't been there. Um, But uh, I, I sort of see the whole environment as my client, right? So where are the tension points? Where are the points? Yeah. I can sort of scan the room and say, you know, um, these people over here look, there looks like there's some tension or there's, you know, this mom looks really overwhelmed and there are five children running around. What can I do to, to make that, you know, easier for this, for this mom in this moment? Um, I also am looking at the other, at the shelter workers um, who hasn't had a break in a while, who has, who's clearly, you know, at the end of the rope and could use, um, could use a break. So really it's, it's um, sort of, looking at the whole environment and seeing where are the points of, of, of tension um, or conflict or, um, you know, emotional heightened emotions in some way that um, that I can help resolve to make the whole situation for everybody as calm as possible and as safe as possible. We know that people start to recover more quickly when they feel safe and when there's a sense of calm in the environment. And so in the, in the immediate aftermath, those are the things that I'm, that I'm looking for. One of the reasons that I was excited to talk to you today was that we are approaching the two-year anniversary of COVID, um, which is obviously a kind of ongoing disaster that we're all working through uh, in one way or another. What is COVID's legacy thus far on mental health? 
you know, I think that um, one of the things that we're um, thus far, one of the things that we're seeing is that as opposed to other more traditional, if you will, acute disasters um, with COVID, the mental health impacts have sort of been out front. Um, and so um, and often in other disasters, mental health, um, the, the mental health impact is sort of low on the list of priorities and people aren't necessarily thinking about it. But with COVID, I think we've all felt it in one way or another, or we've been around someone else who has felt it. So I think that it's heightened, it's it's raised the level of the conversation about the importance of mental health, I think, broadly. Um, certainly for children and schools, we've done a lot of training and support of teachers who are trying to meet the needs of all these kids impacted by a disaster all at once while also being impacted by it themselves. So it's one of the legacies I think is, is not necessarily a bad one if there's a sort of a silver lining and it's around putting mental health more squarely in the middle of the conversation. I think the other piece is that, I guess I just sort of mentioned it, but the other piece is that as opposed to other disasters where there's maybe a clear line between or a clear distinction between who is a survivor and who is a responder. In COVID, we're all survivors in some way, and we're also all responders in some way, because we've all been impacted, and we're also all living with and and or working with people who've been impacted. And so it's caused us to sort of, at the Institute, it's caused us to sort of rethink how we think about that work and, and what kind of training and support people need when they are both a survivor and a responder. And when it's ongoing, right? When there's no clear endpoint. And that's one of the things that's been the most challenging about this particular disaster is, you know, I just I said earlier, like people can't really start to recover fully until they feel safe. And usually that happens when the disaster is over and people can move on and we're in a post-disaster period. And with this particular disaster, we're all trying to cope as best we can, but waves of the disaster still keep coming, right? And so it's sort of, we all have this sort of heightened chronic baseline level of stress within these new waves of acute stress that keep coming. Um, and that's a really, it's a really hard thing for people to tackle. It's a lot for all of us to tackle. I'm glad you brought up that kind of chronic level of stress. I know that there was some research in the news maybe a month or two ago about how long-term low-level stress can have drastic impacts on people's long-term health and it can cause early death. So what are some recommendations that you have for supporting our own mental health throughout this ongoing crisis? Yeah, yeah, no, it's a really important question. So one of the things that we talk about is um, that it's less important what you do and more important that you do that thing regularly. So we all have to kind of retrain our brains to get back to that baseline level of calm or that sort of steady state that um, we operate in most of the time, because we are all now so constantly triggered into more of a, a fight or flight heightened sort of survival mode place. And so there are lots of ways to do that, but it's about it's about doing it over and over again so that it becomes more automatic. It's almost like building mental muscle. Um, and so there are, um, you know, um, certainly there are ways around and lots of lots of good data around any sort of mindfulness practice, deep breathing practice, progressive muscle relaxation um, or, or more formal meditation practice. But th those aren't for everybody. Um, physical exercise can do the same thing. Physical exercise is one of the best ways to sort of close the stress response loop in our brains. 
um, creative expression. So some way of, of um, you know, playing music or dance or, um, you know, coloring, <laughs> um, whatever. And then there are cognitive-based ways around um, one of the things that we teach at the Institute is stress inoculation, which is a cognitive strategy of sort of paying attention to the chatter in your brain um, that kind of causes us to stay in a negative place and, and reworking that. And so, again, any of those can be effective. It's it's which one are you more likely to to stick with on a regular basis so that it becomes um, what we're looking for there is sort of habit formation so that 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 tool is there when you need it in the moment because it's hard to learn a new skill when you're in crisis mode so you want to have rehearsed it over and over so that when you really need it you have access to it is covid having an outsized mental health impact on young people because i and i know you brought up um, you know, the difficulties of kids and, and, and school and whatnot these days. And both of my parents are teachers and I know that they oh, wow. have, uh, you know, seen their classroom struggling and they've been struggling. But, you know, if this is having an outsized impact on kids, and even if it's not, what can we as a Catskills, Hudson Valley local community do to help support young people and, and make sure that they are growing up to be, uh, okay after a really difficult few years? Yeah, yeah. Again, another really important question. I think determining the outsized impact from a research perspective, we're still sort of, you know, a little bit away from being able, I think, to cite numbers around that. But I do know that kids and adults are reporting much higher levels of anxiety. Um, So certainly there are things that we can do. We know that kids benefit from structure, routine, predictability. Those things all create a sense of of safety, which is what we're looking for. Um, And we also know that kids and adults do better um, when they are surrounded by social support. So one of the best predictors of how well someone is going to do, um, a child or an adult, um, in recovering from exposure to a disaster is their perceived level of social support. And so the isolation that the pandemic has caused is really tricky because it's taking away the thing that we know kids need in order to be able to recover. And so whatever as a community or as a region that we can do to stay connected to kids and to keep kids connected to each other um, is, is probably the most important thing that we could do. The sense of community, the sense of connection, the sense of belonging that this has that kids desperately need anyway, and that the pandemic has stripped um, from us or or forced us to drastically change how we do that. I think that's really um, probably the number one thing. How can we have better conversations about mental health on a whole? And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, this pandemic may be helping to improve the stigma of that surrounds mm-hmm. mental health, um, but certainly not, you know, it certainly hasn't gone away entirely. What can we do mm-hmm. to, to make it more normalized to talk about that in the same way that we talk about our physical health? Yeah, that's a really great question. I think using the parallel to physical health and the analogy of, of physical health, I think is a really, um, is a good entry point for some people. Um, sometimes we'll say, you know, if you had diabetes, you wouldn't, you wouldn't leave that untreated um, necessarily. Um, and it wouldn't necessarily be shameful to go to a physician to seek help for, you know, for, for diabetes or for, um, 
migraines or something like that. And, um, you know, mental health challenges are, are, are brain challenges just like migraines or anything else. And so they don't mean that you're crazy. They don't mean that something's wrong with you. These are what we say often is that these are um, people are having expected understandable reactions to abnormal circumstances. So it's the circumstance that's the problem, not the person. And we're all trying the best that we can to cope with that. And, and like I just said earlier, all of us need social support in order to be able to recover. We know that that's what predicts outcome. And so whether it's um, connecting with and sharing your experience with someone close to you um, or with a physician or with um, a mental health professional, um, being able to talk to someone and and share what's on your mind and and download that, if you will, or offload that by sharing it with someone else is such a powerful healing thing. And again, this isn't that there are a few people who are struggling. We are all struggling. And so I think, you know, those of us who are um, able to to talk about this and to to get the message out there and to have conversations like this, I really appreciate the opportunity in this interview to say, you know, if you are having a hard time with this, First of all, you are not alone. Second of all, it does not mean that there is something wrong with you. We are all, again, I'll say it one more time. We are all doing the best we can to cope with something that is beyond what most of us have ever, um, you know, learned how to cope with. And um, and we're all trying to hold our families together and our work together um, at, at the same time. And so there is um, nothing wrong with getting help. In fact, just the opposite. It really can make a huge difference, whatever kind of help seems most useful to you. If we could snap our fingers and make you czar of uh, mental health policy, say for New York state, you know, on day one, what kinds of policies would you want to enact uh, to improve mental health care? Depends on who's listening to this conversation. Um, So I would, (laughs) the first thing that I would want to do is I would want to train everybody children, teenagers, and adults in um, psychological first aid. So psychological first aid is um, a a non-clinical tool that can be used by anyone for anyone, um, with anyone, just to help people, um, support people's natural recovery processes and help those kick into place and make sure that people's short-term needs are met so that they're more likely to make a full recovery. I Here at the Institute, we've been talking about the value of training teenagers and being able to understand the impact of this on them and, and, and how they can support themselves and each other. And I think empowering, I think sometimes we underestimate what kids are capable of understanding what they're capable of doing. Um, So I would love to see us be able to train kids and adults in understanding the impact, you know, psychoeducation around what is giving a name to what their experience is, and then giving them some tools for supporting themselves and each other. Um, we do do a lot of psychological first aid training with different groups, teachers, emergency responders, I mean, emergency managers, first responders. But I, I think it's a tool that everybody could use. And I think it would increase our empathy for each other. Um, and um, I think it would really allow us to communicate with each other more effectively. I think it would work toward the destigmatization that you just talked about. So I think statewide psychological first aid training would be my day one policy recommendation. Well, Amy, thank you so much for your time. Last question before I let you go. Um, What has been some of the most interesting research that you have read or heard about recently related to mental health and disaster mental health? You know, I I guess what I want to say to that is that we know what people need. Um, We know how to treat 
post-traumatic stress disorder and other psychological disorders that are likely to be an outcome of this particular disaster, as well as other disasters. And we know what people need in the immediate aftermath of a disaster to help prevent the onset of those disorders. What we don't have is access to people to get them the information that they need. And so in order to do that. So the research is pretty clear. Um, and, you know, no matter how many new disasters there are, we're going to find similar things, similar rates of disorders. Um, but but the, the core ingredients of what we what kids need and what people need, we already know. Safety, calm, a sense of self-efficacy, a sense of connectedness to other people and a sense of hope. And so really the challenge is how, what are the pathways to get those five sort of core ingredients out to the broader population? Thank you so much to Dr. Amy Nitza for taking the time to chat today. I think that something she said that really resonated with me was that it matters less what you do to de-stress and maintain your mental health, and more that you do it regularly. So whether it's getting outside for a walk or a run, taking up a creative hobby that you enjoy, or just finding a few minutes to take a deep breath once in a while, keep doing that. And it all feels like there are higher stakes for maintaining our mental health these days as we continue to deal with the effects of COVID. But even when our world does return to some iteration of normal someday, we can't afford to let our mental health fall by the wayside. We need to keep thinking about it, keep talking about it, and keep working towards improving it for all of us. I'm Leif Johansson, and this is Close to Home, a podcast from WJFF Radio Catskill. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and have a great week.